Welcome to the favorites from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman. Listen, folks, there is a massive story going on in the sports world right now. Uh, and it's called the AAF. What is that? Is that the American Alliance of Football? Is that what they're calling it? I got to tell you, it is. It is. Ta- Hold on. Don't don't start talking. I haven't introduced you yet. But my guest on the podcast today has taken over uh, coverage of the AAF in a way that is uh, unparalleled. There is no one doing it the way he's doing it. He's kind of a combination of, you know, Adam Schefter and Matt Hasselbeck and John Gruden and John Madden all rolled into one. The guy has watched more film on the AAF than I think I've watched of my kids growing up. It is actually <laughs> astonishing how much work Ian Hartitz of the Action Network is doing on AAF coverage. What's going on, brother? Thanks, Chad. And, you know, I'd like to add, I, I think I'm a homeless man's combination of those lovely people you mentioned. But, no, I had to step in there early on because it's the Alliance of American Football League. So a lot of people think America's coming first, which it should in most uh, parts of life, but not for the AAF. You'd think I would get that right. <laughs> it's all good. It's only, it's only, we're only on to week three. Well, we're only on to week three. And uh, this morning on the Action Network, you had like another 5,000-word story that broke down film, rated players, gave best odds to win the AAF title, rated uh, position groupings, uh, broke down like every element of every player down to snaps being played, targets. It's kind of amazing. I feel like we have to start from the beginning. So first of all, Explain to people how your obsession with the AAF began. Yeah, so, you know, basically I was full-on NFL grind from week one of the preseason all the way up until the Super Bowl. And then, uh, you know, that pretty much terrible uh, Rams-Patriots Super Bowl ends. Uh, Monday morning comes around, I was just kind of looking at my schedule and, uh, you know, free up uh, that much NFL time. There's a a lot of uh, free time all of a sudden for – full-time NFL writer and uh you know I'm not like some fantasy analyst that try to jump around these different sports halfway through and I just saw a nice uh situation opening up where there was a league that you know was 11 on 11 tackle football which I love more than anything and uh there was a kind of painfully a lack of uh, reporting and awareness kind of going on with it so I figured you know why not kind of devote some of these cold winter months of my life to this uh, league that at the very least, you know, resembles tackle football. And I don't know, man, I mean, I'm not the biggest NBA fan out there or anything, but like I will literally watch like a division five high school game over, you know, professional sports uh, being played, you know, in a different type of a game. So I've been all for it and I'm happy to see that the public uh, began to come around as well. It looks like, look, I mean, people should know that uh, you are a regular uh, analyst for the Action Network covering the NFL. You do our matchups column every week, which is amazing. Tell me the amount of work that goes into doing a matchups column for us. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a matchup manifesto during the week and a wide receiver cornerback uh, during the week. I, I don't know, Chad. I mean, I, I consider like September through January, you know, those are my, those are my months to pretty much 
work from uh, sunup to sundown. So it's it's a huge effort uh, every week, you know, from the time the games end on Sunday. You know, I'm writing the takeaways column. And then Monday, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday are almost exclusively spent pretty much getting these columns ready for the weekend. So it's, you know, it's it's. I've been putting out a ton of AAF content, but because there's only eight teams, uh, you know, I don't think it's as uh, rough of a grind as the NFL season at all. And uh, it's uh, it's fun to kind of be learning about these uh, new squads and not having the same level, of, I guess, uh, kind of the NFL news grind, which can kind of weigh on you over, uh, you know, that long of a season. So it's been a nice relief uh, getting into AAF. You know, it's still a bunch of work, but hey, man, if you're not working hard, I mean, what are you doing? So it's all good. I agree. And you should remind people, you played college football. Yes, sir. University of Chicago. And they have a football team for all the haters out there. Undefeated all time against Notre Dame. How many games have they played against Notre Dame? That's not really important or here or there. But <laughs> I, I think, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure two. <laughs> two games back when Jay Burwinger was playing in the 1930s. Hey, man, according to Michigan fans, that's the time that really matters or something. So. Uh, so listen, you guys, uh, you and Sean Corner both, uh, who's known as uh, the odds maker and whose rankings and um, ratings of fantasy football players are beloved and sort of a driver, certainly for us at the Action Network, you guys have been dominating this coverage and, and certainly you guys talk about it on the Action Network NFL podcast. But I feel like we need to give people a little bit of a primer like AAF, how many games are there going to be? What are some of the things that have been most interesting to you when you're watching these games? Yeah, so the big thing, if you've never watched a snap, like just realize AF is a developmental NFL league. I mean, this isn't the XFL or Canadian football or arena league where you're seeing, you know, weird motion and kind of a, a game that resembles football. I mean, the goal here was to be uh, like kind of little brothers in the NFL and provide a stepping stone for players to get more reps and get better and hopefully make it to the NFL. So there's eight teams. It's a 10-week regular season. You know, begins the week after the Super Bowl ends uh, basically right around the NFL draft. Two-round playoff format, so 12 weeks total. Um, it was founded by just, you know, t- former TV producer, son of uh, Dick, Charlie Ebersole, as well as, uh, as well as Hall of Famer Bill Poley. And so they kind of had the, you know, more entertainment as well as the on-field football, uh, both those sides covered. And, yeah, so there are different rules, but, again, these rules are more meant to embrace the on-field NFL product and to really change too much. I mean, there's no kickoffs, so onside kicks are replaced by a fourth and 12 uh, conversion that the offense has to go for. There's no extra points, so teams always have to go for two. You know, two seemingly minor uh, rules somewhat, but you just end up getting uh, these kind of extra plays throughout the game. You're not being slowed down by uh, special teams as much, which after you watch a couple games, you do notice a much uh, faster increased pace of play. The biggest difference are the kind of blitz restrictions that are put on defenses. They can only rush five guys at a time. Uh, they more or less handcuff the defenses. I mean, you can't do double A gap blitzes or disguise them all that well. The players have to kind of be on the line of scrimmage, which, you know, we're talking to uh, Jeff Schwartz and some of us before the season started about how you know, these offenses should be able to move the ball up and down the field with uh, these blitz restrictions that are kind of like what you see in the Pro Bowl almost. But as we kind of found out in week one, uh, might have underestimated just how bad some of these quarterbacks are, especially early in the season. So uh, we weren't seeing as many points to start the year as I think maybe the league had hoped. But I think overall you turn the game on and you're going to be pleasantly surprised with uh, the on-field product. All right. So – I want to get to a bunch of different betting questions, but first I want to know, like, why should I trust you? Like, 
you know what I mean? You're yeah. you're analyzing this stuff. Nobody else is. But like, how are you doing it? What makes me be- what What should make me trust in what you're saying? Hey man, I think uh, what Kanye said it best. If you can do it better than me, then you do it. But uh, no, it's I, no. I, I really am pouring pretty much uh, my heart and soul into trying to do this as well as possible. And to me, uh, when you're approaching a league like this, where we don't have much information available. I mean, really, all we can do is try to um, take in all the information that is available. I mean, I, I see a lot of people kind of scoffing at the idea of betting on AAF because, you know, there's so much we don't know. But, I mean, the odds makers, there's a lot they don't know, too, because this is such an unknown for everyone. So, you know, I think there is a little bit of an edge there in just embracing that uncertainty and realizing that we don't know it all. But, you know, all I can do in the meantime is try to know it all as fast as possible. So, for me, that's, you know, pretty much – uh, watching most of these games on Saturday or Sunday, you know, I'd like to say I'm a, I, I have a bit more of a social life than that, but I have watched an alarming amount of these games live so far. And then uh, afterwards, you know, making sure to go back through and finding these games again on YouTube uh, or some other channel and re- re-watching them because I have found that because of the lack of uh, news information available, the broadcasts are very helpful with uh, the coaches will kind of analyze their uh, packages and why this player played over this player and different information like that, which you can only really hear from listening to the broadcast. So uh, just watching the film, listening to the broadcast, and then now that we're a couple weeks in, we've had websites like Pro Football Focus and uh, NoExtraPoints.com begin to provide information so I'm able to do you know, more of the uh, typical NFL-type analysis uh, that you know, I've, I've gotten good at over the last few years. So, you know, I, I say uh, if, if you want to take a chance on me, just go ahead and read my scouting report. You know, I think you'll see – uh, you know, I put a ton of time into this. And, yeah, you know, just trying to really uncover every stone because big thing is, you know, I, I'm not having an ego with any of this. I, I've, again, I was very wrong early on in the season about thinking that the overs would be hitting because of these rules. I mean, we got to have a, you know, kind of short mindset in this, be willing to adjust on the fly because it is a new league and we don't know that much. So just trying to keep getting better uh, week by week. And I think the best way to do that is just immerse yourself in it. All right. So have you been betting on the AAF? I have been. And how's it going? Not too bad. Uh, week one was our whole strategy was pretty much fade Christian Hackenberg, which worked out brilliantly. Uh, didn't know much else about the rosters there. Uh, yeah, like I said, I think the overs in week one went one and three, so that didn't go that great. But uh, last week we were able to adjust in our uh, ultimate betting guide. We were able to go four and two. Uh, pretty much pounded the underdogs two and two there, but by knowing uh, kind of how these quarterbacks and offenses are a little bit, I was able to get on the uh, uh, who was it? Orlando San Antonio over because those were two of the pretty much only decent offenses, as well as the uh, Atlanta San Diego under. After seeing how bad those guys are, so we're getting there, Chad. Let's talk about Christian Hackenberg for a second. I almost feel oh, bad for the guy. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like. Here was a guy who, you know, many, many years ago took a huge chance. He was the number one rated player coming out of high school. Took this huge chance, decided to stay at Penn State even after all of the Joe Pa drama and probably had a chance to walk away from his scholarship at Penn State. He decides to stay. He does okay. And at one point, I feel like maybe coming out of his junior year, if he had gone out after his junior year, he might have been a first-round pick. Stays for his senior year, doesn't do that well, falls down in the draft, goes to the Jets. It's kind of a joke. Like, 
there, this is a cautionary tale all along the way. What do you think of that? Yeah, you said it, man. Not once has Hackenberg ever really been set up for success since he's left high school. I mean, he has... He goes to Penn State, starts as a freshman, and b- things go so well with Bill O'Brien that you know O'Brien leaves and takes the Texans job. So there goes you know pretty much the only good college head coach Hackenberg had, and then he had to deal with those depleted Penn State rosters for the next two years. You know before they were kind of able to kind of resurge under James Franklin and become that you know much more competent team that we've seen the last few years. And now, like you said, he goes to the Jets, doesn't really have a chance to succeed there. Now he's in the AAF. His head coach is Mike Singletary, you know, longtime defensive mind, old school football coach. And their offensive coordinator was supposed to be Hal Hume, who's more of a progressive air rated minded coach. But he unfortunately left the team about two months before the season started. So, man, if you watch about a quarter of this uh, Memphis offense with Hackenberg, I wouldn't be shocked if Singletary has an alarming amount of a sway in what exactly they're trying to do on offense because it really just isn't a situation that I think many quarterbacks would be able to succeed. And unfortunately, it's looking like it's kind of bringing out uh, the worst in Hackenberg uh, in this last game because the guy just hardly has any time to throw. When he does, he's pretty rushed. So, I mean, it seems like his strategy last week was if his first read isn't there, take off, scramble, and then not sliding. I mean, oh, my God, Christian, he was getting – absolutely pulverized last week. I felt bad for the guy. Even when he manages to score a touchdown, he was laid out into the end zone afterwards. So, oh man, if anyone needs a break in this world, it's Christian Hackenberg. Well, what was, what was the number this weekend? It was 16 and a half. Was that this weekend or the weekend before? It was uh, 16 last week. And week two of a, little, of a league we barely know anything about. <laughs> and it was 16 and a half. And he didn't cover, did he? He did cover. Yeah, they, they actually... Uh, it was funny. They, Memphis was up on Arizona, who was widely considered the best team in the league, 12 nothing at halftime. So you think, you know, you're winning by two scores against the best team in the league. Your quarterback must be playing pretty well. But it was so bad that, like, Brandon Silvers was even – their backup was even warming up in the third quarter of that game because Hackenberg still just couldn't really get anything going. So they did end up covering. Arizona came back in a one twenty to eighteen anyway, but sixteen points uh, was still just a ridiculous sight to see. All right, so Christian Hackenberg, you know that's too bad. He's probably not going to get back to the NFL. How are you making decisions about betting in this sport? How are you power rating teams right now? So the big thing for me when it started was just trying to identify who the good quarterbacks are and what offenses are potentially running uh, some new look schemes. I mean, I won't pretend to be like the biggest offensive wizard in the world, but we did have a bunch of uh, coaches here like Mike Martz and some of these guys who literally had not coached in 10 years. So that's not always a bad thing for coaches. You know, sometimes you see them uh, go out, get, even if they're broadcasting and stuff, you know, they're still kind of learning new offenses, learning new things, going around the country, doing all that. But we find out that there are other coaches like Mike Martz who more or less don't do anything for 10 years and then try to run the same offense that worked really well in 1998. So trying to identify that before the year was kind of what led me on to Birmingham, for example. Uh, they had the worst odds in the entire league to start the year, but their quarterback, uh, Luis Perez, actually won the D2 Heisman in uh, 2017, was able to get a cup of coffee with the Rams and Sean McVay in the preseason 2018. So, you know, if Sean McVay thinks highly of you, that's usually good enough to get a head coaching job in the NFL, so it's not bad if you're a quarterback as well, I figure. And uh, 
Yeah, so kind of knowing that Birmingham had at least a halfway cough and a quarterback under center, you know, they've been lucky enough to start 2-0. and I was able to kind of get on that future before. And I think what we've uh, really seen now after two weeks is a separation in that quarterback play throughout the league. Uh, you're seeing Arizona, Orlando, Birmingham, and San Antonio are kind of the top four teams with their quarterback play. Salt Lake, their starter, uh, Josh Woodrum, hurt his hamstring in the uh, first half of the first game. So they're still a little bit up in the air. But San Diego, Atlanta, and Memphis are bad, and we've seen that really play out. Because, I mean, at any level of football, if you don't have a good quarterback, you're going to struggle uh, to consistently move the ball. So, yeah, maybe you can overcome that with uh, good defense and some different things of that nature. But it was really impossible for us to know that going into the season. So, Biggest thing for me is just been evaluating these QBs. All right, so uh, I believe you said in your story today, Garrett Gilbert may be the best quarterback in the AAF. Garrett Gilbert. Does the <laughs> NFL like just miss this guy, or is he good for the AAF but a third stringer or non-roster player in the NFL? Give me an assessment here. Yeah, so I think it's important to keep in mind, like when we're talking about a guy being great in the AAF, that doesn't mean that. They're going to go to the NFL and have the same level of success. I think it honestly just shows how high level the NFL really is for these players to, you know, attempt to go to the NFL. And I understand a lot of them maybe didn't have the opportunity they needed to succeed or there maybe there are some various factors that didn't allow them to flourish. But either way, I mean, we've seen more than enough examples of the AAF of just talented players that weren't able to crack in the NFL to know that there's still plenty of high-level football being played out here. So, yeah, Gary Gilbert, you know, uh, wasn't really able to do anything uh, uh, professionally when the, in the few snaps he was able to get, and now all of a sudden you throw him with Steve Spurrier, and he looks like a freaking god. But it's just, uh, yeah, keep in mind, especially I think in this Orlando offense, that uh, it is different than anything we're kind of seeing in the NFL because the crazy thing with Gilbert – 30% of his passes have been at least 20 yards or downfield so far this season. I mean, they are not afraid to chuck that ball. And, I mean, for comparison, no NFL quarterback has even surpassed 20% uh, on his uh, deep ball rate. So it's definitely different styles being played a little bit, which I think is helping uh, increase numbers for someone like Gilbert. But it's also just some good football being played. And, you know, guys like Rashad Ross, Charles Johnson, these wide receivers that are uh, balling out as well, yeah, maybe they're not going to go to the NFL and you know immediately become a thousand-yard guy, but I think uh, just giving these players extra foam opportunities, extra chances to show, hey, you know, you, if you do give me ten targets per game, I'm capable of you know coming down with uh, five or six of them. Having those chances, I think, is just really huge uh, for every position. I love that Steve Spurrier is coaching and that he's got the best passing stats in the league. <laughs> and I feel like I feel like if I feel like betting should be allowed by the players on this. And they should be able to bet on their own. That, that would take the league to the next level. And they've got this app, and the app is playing, and, like, you know, you can pick the next play that's going on. And all weekend I was playing with it, and I kept picking plays, and I went with the opposite. I ended up being on the opposite side of the crowd and nearly everyone because I'm a contrarian. But I feel like this league is tailor-made for, like, you know, players to bet on themselves in the player prop category. I agree. I mean, especially if they're betting on themselves. I mean, I don't really see the downside in it because everyone's just worried about, you know, someone throwing a game, which obviously no one wants. But, yeah, I think people would love that. And they're already kind of interviewing these, uh, you know, I see a player interview kind of end the first and the third quarter. And, I mean, yeah, imagine if, uh, you know, Luis Perez walks out there and goes, yeah, I saw my 
uh, player prop for yards is only 205. Like that's an insult. I'm easily, I'm easily covering that. I mean, it just adds a whole nother storyline to it. That's a fun thing to, uh, get excited about so yeah i'm with you chad especially uh while this league remains you know a little bit of a um, niche kind of betting and fantasy sport uh just doing everything they can to embrace that would uh really be great did you watch any luis perez games in college i did not but i did grind some film of him in the preseason uh, nfl preseason in particular uh as i was trying to get a better read on these teams yeah <laughs> You grinded some film on Luis Perez. <sighs> yeah, it's so uh, it's Perez. But here's the crazy thing too: like these quarterback situations haven't even been locked in stone. I mean, I thought I was getting a good read on everyone, but we find out like Arizona, who's been the consensus best team all year, they were supposed to be going with Trevor Knight, uh, who was at Oklahoma and uh, later Texas A&M in college. Like he was their starting quarterback up until about the Thursday before game time. They turn around and go with John Wolford who then looks like the best quarterback in the league on Sunday. So it's uh, one of these things where, yeah, the, maybe the quarterback, you know, is going to be a certain uh, part of how good this offense is. But it's also once you see kind of the system they're in, the scheme they're running, uh, that's really when you can set the ceiling. Is it all that different? Like, are you seeing things that are innovative in the AAF that the NFL doesn't do? Uh, not so much from the on-field product yet i think the nfl is ahead of it it's it's kind of difficult for the defenses in particular to be all that innovative because of those kind of aforementioned blitzing rules that handcuff them a bit but the only real offense i've seen that looks like a modern kind of almost college style team is arizona i mean they've they've run the second most play action in the league and they're getting the ball out uh Walford's getting the ball out of his hands that quicker than anyone a whole bunch of up-tempo stem up-tempo stuff there, but I, I think you'd still be surprised, like, some of the caveman ball that's going on uh, with these teams, like uh, Memphis week one with Hackenberg, they're down a couple scores at halftime, and, like, I kid you not, their second half game plan ch- uh, change was to run more Wildcat, so I think some of these teams are still uh, still, still playing a little bit behind the eight ball there. Uh, do you think this is better than college football, or is it the same as college football? I think college football is better because people still have the tradition to latch on to and more of a comfort zone with it. I think the on-field product has a chance to be pretty similar, though. I don't think it's there yet, but like we saw last week in that um, Orlando versus San Antonio game, a matchup between pretty much two of the only four decent QBs in the league. Uh, and it was really the most entertaining one yet, kind of like a poor man's version of uh, Rams-Chiefs where, yes, there was really good offense kind of going back and forth, but we saw some defensive scores. I mean, it wasn't like a big 12 game. I mean, there was good defense and offense kind of being played on both sides of the ball. So there are situations like that, but, I mean, come on. Like You can also look at San Diego versus Atlanta where we got, uh, you know, Philip Nelson chucking the ball over his head like he's a madman where it's like, all right, guys, like, is this really the best level of football we can uh, put on display here? So I think, uh, you know, I think it's mean isn't going to be as good as college football, but I think the better games of the AAF are certainly at that level. All right, so this past weekend uh, there were four games, and all four games – had relatively bad beats. And like, we came into the office this morning, Scott Miller, uh, our executive editor, came in this morning, he's like, I bet on all four games, got got beaten all four games in ways that if that was an NFL game, 
we would have written four massive stories about how bad those beats were. So <laughs> explain to me, explain to me how you're going to feel good if you're in that situation betting on a sport that's two weeks old in which the only person who's telling us anything is you, Ian Hartitz. <laughs> yeah, man. It's, I, I've seen a couple more guys come out of the woodworks here in these last few weeks, so we're starting to get some more uh, competition in the field, which you know is just going to help bring out the best in all, all of us. But, yeah, some pretty bad beats going on last week, but I don't know, man. Like, isn't a bad beat just a good beat for the other, for the other better on the other side? So uh, I, I, I feel for Scott, and I wish they'd uh, worked out a little better for him, but I don't know. I still felt like we had a pretty decent grasp on uh, the league going into last week, maybe as a whole. I mean, there was some, um, you know, like there's definitely some variance to pop up, but I mean, we looked at that 16 point Memphis spread and kind of knew that was too high. That was able to come to fruition. And then, uh, you know, Birmingham uh, was favored by a little too much over Salt Lake. They weren't quite able to cover that. So I think these games that have two really bad quarterbacks, like your, like your Atlanta-San Diego game, you got to recognize that and kind of think that there's going to be some more variance there, you know, higher, higher chance for turnovers and things of that nature. But I think, uh, you know, the, the, the key to this is folk, maybe don't bet on every game like, you, like some of you D-Gens might for the NFL slate and just uh, focus on the two or three you think you can actually get an edge in. Because, look, I mean, yeah, guys like me, you know, guys, uh, you know, these other fantasy analysts, we don't know as much about this as we do about the NFL, but the same thing could be said about the odds makers. I mean, it's a new league for everyone. So I think uh, really trying to immerse ourselves as early as possible is just giving us the best chance to be successful. All right. So you just said something really interesting, which was obviously you want to pay attention to quarterbacks. Like if, if I am a better Jones in for some action on football and I'm thinking about betting on the AAF, how am I finding my edge? Quarterbacks, you just mentioned the variance in quarterbacks. Obviously, you can read your stuff. You can go to PFF. You can sort of do a lot of different things to try to figure out what the research is. But what are the keys that you're looking for when you're power rating these games? Yeah, so the big thing before the season, like I said, was just play callers, quarterbacks. Now we actually have a little more stuff going on uh, with us. So I'm able to do you know, more of the typical NFL-style uh, statistical analysis during the week with some of that data we mentioned, but uh, really, you know, once kind of we're at the Tuesday, Wednesday part of the week, that's when I want to kind of start looking at these matchups more to see uh, who's going to get exploited because right now we're seeing a huge disparity between these offenses. I mean, Orlando is averaging 7.6 yards per play. Way to go, uh, Spurrier. Meanwhile, we have three teams averaging 3.9 yards per play or fewer. I mean, that's literally almost uh, – you know, you're halving a half of one Orlando play is going to get you two of Salt Lake's plays. I mean, it's ridiculous how much more efficient uh, some of these offenses are. So, just recognizing that, and then trying to get a good read on these defenses, I think as the season goes on, will be useful as well. Right now, I don't see a single. I mean, maybe Atlanta. I think is the only defense I, I would point to that looks like a kind of major liability, but. Also, the defenses at least look uh, pretty okay for the most part. So keeping an eye on who they're being tested by, like, for example, Birmingham, you know, they've looked really good, but they've played at Memphis and uh, San Diego so far. This week they got Atlanta, so really haven't been tested yet. Trying to keep that in mind. And then I think uh, the last thing is just, uh, you know, we don't have a great Schefter guy in the AAF that's going to give you all the news, you know, injury reports are pretty tough to come by. So really just doing everything you can to dig through those, you know, go through the AF beat writers. I mean, it can be a tedious task sometimes, but 
you know, then we find out in a situation like uh, with Salt Lake last week that while Josh Woodrum was a game-time decision and questionable all week, if you kind of pay attention more to the beat writers and some of the articles, you would know that he was more on the doubtful side of things. So, again, just, you know, really trying to cover – really trying to um, uncover every last uh, stone and piece of information is, I think, just the best way to go about it. Well, at the end of the day, this is also about another way to take advantage of a market in which you can make some money. Absolutely. I mean, that's... Yeah, man. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, like, the one thing we have is, uh, you know, talking about kind of the gambling ways and on it, but there's a big uh, fantasy market kind of growing on it, too. We've been uh, lucky enough to get some daily fantasy contests with the fine folks at Fanball, and I think that's going to be a big uh, boost to this league, uh, league staying power in general, is just trying to get more people involved in the fantasy side of things, because, I mean, I, you know... People that don't even love football, per se, or love playing fantasy football, and that's kind of the opportunity we're getting here. So it was pretty tough for uh, anyone to get a season-long league going. And even if you were able to get it going, I'm sure there's been enough kind of fluky draft picks already kind of uh, sway the tide in those leagues. So I do think uh, the kind of nature of this league, you know, as we know more each week and week in and week out, it does set itself up really kindly to the daily fantasy uh, format where you can kind of take more of a week by week approach. All right. So Ian, we're going to, uh, we got uh, Eli Hershkovich, our, our college basketball analyst is going to come up later in the show. But before you go, I need you to give me your picks for this weekend's AAF games. That's what we've been leading to this whole time. This is what we've been waiting for. You are all things AAF media rolled into one. Give me your picks. I wish we had the lines available, but I am not seeing them just yet. But So, interestingly enough, two of these games already feature uh, rematches and between uh, teams that faced in week one. Uh, so, San Diego and San, Tan- San Antonio, as well as... Um, or uh, Salt Lake versus Arizona games, they already faced each other in week one. And, uh, you know, one piece of research that uh, Jonathan Bales, uh, my boss, has done in the past is he's looked at NFL quarterbacks in their second kind of divisional game of the season, and the offenses always perform worse. I think this makes sense. You know, defenses get a second look at a team, and they're going to have a chance to make adjustments and be better, especially considering that these offenses have only had two weeks to improve during the spam. I love the unders in these games, even though I don't know what they are yet uh, in San Diego, San Antonio, as well as um, Salt Lake and Arizona. And that leaves, uh, you know, uh, I'll get my straight up picture of these games too. Uh, Arizona, I think is the best team in the league. They're, they're going to take down Salt Lake if John, Josh Woodrum is still out. Keep an eye on that though, because Woodrum coming back is going to help that Salt Lake team. I don't think they're as bad as their 0-2 record uh, says they are. Orlando versus Memphis, hard to hard to not ride with Spurrier and company at home, but I do think we could see another lofty line in that 16-point range potentially, so it might be another situation to take a dog that you're not too happy about. Uh, Birmingham versus Atlanta. Uh, I do like Birmingham. Luis Perez talked him up a ton, and Atlanta is just so bad uh, with Matt Sims. They're a bunch of their coaches I've left in the last month, so I got Birmingham. And then finally, uh, San Diego versus San Antonio, and I like San Antonio here. Uh, it is another situation, though, where I can see that line being a little high. So might have to go after the underdog, which uh, was something we did last week to a little bit of success. So 
even though it might not feel good, people, if you don't know a ton about it, as much as you do about another sport, just, uh, you know, embrace the uncertainty and let's hopefully make some money. Embrace the uncertainty. It's a good, it's a good way for all of us to live our lives. Ian Hartitz from the Action Network. Dude, you are killing it. This stuff is so, so good. Uh, if you don't know anything about the AAF, uh, but if you just like to read someone who is fully immersed in analyzing football, then you got to go read Ian Hartitz and uh, fill his heart with joy because uh, he is putting a lot of effort into these things. Ian, nice work, buddy. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a bunch for having me, Chad. Have a good one. All right, brother. All right, coming up next on the podcast, Eli Hershkovich is going to talk about college basketball. He's been following it all season long on the Action Network, and we had a change atop the top 25 this week. We're going to break it down. But first, I want to tell you about Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon's mission is simple, to make sure all your basics and beyond are smartly designed and shopping for them is easy and convenient. And frankly, Mac Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mac Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mac Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more than you will ever wear. I can tell you right now, I've worn the hoodie. I've done the shopping. It was so easy, so intuitive. I bought so quickly. I couldn't believe how much money I was spending. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial. Means that you don't stink when you wear these clothes. That's basically what this means. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. It's good for working out, going to work, going out on dates. I had a date this weekend. I watched a movie with my wife. I wore a Mack Weldon hoodie. This is just everyday life, folks. Ah, I know, right? I know. How easy was it to use the website? It was so easy that I overspent. And as I said, I love, love, love the hoodie. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code ACTION at checkout. 20% off your first order. Visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code ACTION at checkout. Folks, you got to go to Mac Weldon. You know we love our sponsors. We want you to support our sponsors. Be good to them because they're good to us. Let's get to Eli Herskovich and some college basketball. All right. As promised, next up on the podcast, not only are we talking AAF today as we did with Ian Hartitz, we're talking a little college hoops with Action Network college hoops basketball writer Eli Herskovich in Chicago, my hometown. Eli, what's happening? <laughs> Nothing much, Chad. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, A. I love hearing your voice as a fellow Chicagoan because it makes me feel like I'm at home. B, I love that you went to DePaul, uh, which, you know, when I was growing up in Chicago in the 80s was like the transcendent basketball program that I lived for and watched every single night during the season on WGN. Uh, And C... You're going to catch us up, man, because now all the attention is going into college basketball. We're out of the all-star break. UK 
uh, and UT played this weekend. My alma mater, Indiana, plays Purdue uh, tonight. Huge, huge Duke-UNC game tomorrow. Here are my questions for you. Are you ready? Let's do it. Number one, Tennessee. Were they exposed or can they recover? I think they were exposed a little bit. And this was a team that I was really high on coming into the season. Got them at 35-1 to 1 as a future play. And that's really good value considering they're 12-1, to 1, uh, depending on where you shop around. But defensively, they were eighth in the country and adjusted defensive efficiency last year. And that's opponents' points per 100 possessions. So you're looking at a team that brought back a ton of upperclassmen, Grant Williams and Admiral Schofield, two of the top guys in that group. And, and, and they're down 52nd in the country, in the 50s, high 40s in that department. So Kentucky really took it to them on the block. T.J. Washington, who's been out of control good over the last eight games for the Wildcats, it's been a blessing for, for John Calipari that he came back to school. Uh, him and Reed Travis were dominant against that front line. Ashton Higgins, who's been a, a huge, who's improved a ton over, over the conference stretch for the Kentucky Wildcats was tremendous against Jordan Bone, who's a pretty good defensive point guard. So offensively, Tennessee's taken that next step. But defensively, uh, Grant Williams and Kyle Alexander, who's a really good defensive center for the Vols, uh, they were exposed. And I think this is a problem for Tennessee going forward. I'm not saying that they won't beat LSU on the road on Saturday. That, that looks like a good matchup on paper, just looking at that one a little bit. But it, come the tournament, this team has, has real defensive issues. So what did we learn about Kentucky then in this matchup? Are they sort of finding peak Kentucky right now? Are they getting into the great, a great place as they head into the tournament? I think so. And, and it starts with one of the guys I brought up, Ashton Higgins. If you get good point guard play in the tournament, everyone always talks about good defense and elite point guard play. And it, it's not just – it's not a fallacy. You get, you get Ashton Higgins uh, racking up seven assists and one turnover – Come March, so this is, that was a huge step for Kentucky to get a point guard uh, in Hagens that isn't turning the basketball over. And then, again, with P.J. Washington, who's one of the best bigs in college basketball and is starting to ascend here down the stretch. Reed Travis, uh, a, one of the best front courts in the country with Washington and Travis, and then Keldon Johnson, who could shoot it from deep. The biggest flaw last season for Kentucky was they couldn't shoot the three. And now you have a five-star in Johnson that could drain it from deep. They're much improved in that department this season. So this is uh, a team that looks like a Final Four contender. I think they were in the 15 range as a future uh, going back to the preseason, and there wasn't much value in that. So you're, it's not like you're missing out on anything if you didn't grab Kentucky. Uh, but in this season, they're shooting 35.3% from deep. That's above average. So it's not like you're looking at an elite three-point shooting team, but the difference is is they also have experience. Washington has come back as a sophomore. Travis, a graduate transfer from Stanford. So you're not just looking at five-star freshmen in, in Johnson and Hagens that are in, in, a, in a young core around them. This is a very experienced team. That's it's, it's not similar to other Calipari teams. So this isn't a season where, years pa- like in years past, it feels like everything is wide open, even though I think you look down sort of in the – in the numbers for futures. And you guys talked really, really smartly about this on the Action Network Colleges podcast the other day. Um, why wouldn't I just bet on Duke? What are the holes in Duke's opportunity to win the national championship? 
Yeah, and, and it starts with their three-point shooting. You, you watch that game against North Carolina State on Saturday, shot around 16 to 18%, and, and everyone said, going back to the second Virginia win a couple weeks ago, well, Duke is turning that on from three, so now it's, it's game over. That was more of a, an anomaly for Duke than, than any sort of consistent stretch that's coming from the, uh, beyond the perimeter. I know they came back against Louisville from that 23-point deficit. Just an insane comeback. And, and Duke could very well make the Final Four. I'm not saying this team's going to get bounced in in the round of 32 in the opening round like some uh, like some Coach K teams have going back to 2013-2014 with a Chicago guy and Jabari Parker. I know, Chad, you're a big fan of Chicago guys. So Jabari Parker, uh, and that Duke team lost early on at the tournament. Uh, and this team isn't like that. But you look at the rest of, of college basketball right now and, and Kentucky has a chance. Gonzaga obviously beat uh, Duke earlier this season, and that was without Tilly, who's likely going to be done for the rest of the season, might come back for the tournament. Uh, but still, you have Hachi Moore and Brandon Clark, and Clark is one of the best two-way bigs in college basketball. UNC, uh, that will be an interesting game, like you mentioned, coming up on Wednesday night, and they're starting to ascend defensively, and they could shoot the three-ball. Kobe White is one of the most explosive freshmen in college basketball. I know Virginia's lost to Duke already, and I don't necessarily like uh, slow teams come the tournament and low possession teams. When you look at Virginia, they're only averaging uh, under 65 possessions a game, so that's why they've gotten exposed against Michigan State in past tournaments, but it's still not a lot that Virginia's going to go down uh, in the uh, you know Sweet 16 or before that this season in the tournament. This is one of Tony Bennett's better offensive teams. So Duke's flaws, going back to your original point, it's, it's three-point shooting, and it's it's also defense. Coach K has had to switch to his zone from time to time, and, and that this isn't a team that, if you go back to last season, is going to play pr- primarily zone. That was a, a terrible defensive team that Coach K had to cover up. But this year they went had to go to a zone against Louisville, and Louisville didn't know what was coming at them, which, which was surprising. Uh, and a coach that that's experienced that at Xavier a uh, ton. So uh, defensively, they, they can get exposed. And if, if you're facing a team that knows how to play a zone in the tournament and Duke decides to switch to that to, uh, and, and throw you off, it's not necessarily going to work come March. All right. So you guys talked about this on the Action Network Colleges podcast, too. And I want to give people who might not have heard that a chance to do what I did, which is as soon as I was done listening to that podcast, I went and bet uh, Marquette, I bet uh, Kansas State, and I bet Washington all at more than 100 to 1 to win the college basketball title. I almost bet Houston. I think they had dropped considerably between maybe when you guys recorded the podcast and even when I finally got to listen to it about 48 hours later. Break down those four teams for me. That's what made me think, like, is this so wide open? Could you realistically see a Marquette, Kansas State, Washington, or Houston moving that far into the tournament and potentially winning it? So let's start off with Marquette. I am a fan of them. I got them two weeks ago around 50 to 1. But like you mentioned, if you shop around, you can get them at triple figures on the futures market. And, and if they lose a couple of games in conference play, you can get by low value with them too. And it's, it starts with Marcus Howard, one of the most dynamic uh, scorers in college basketball. I think he scored around 40 or 50 points three times this season. So you, you want that March Madness hero. 
Marcus Howard can do it for you. And it, it's also defensively. This team is, is tremendous on the glass, and it hasn't been good defensively overall under Steve Ojahowski since he's got there at Marquette up until this season. Uh, they were around 180 in adjusted defensive efficiency going back to last season. They're now in the 40s or 50s when you take it on a game-by-game basis. They could stretch the three ball with the Hauser brothers, Joey Hauser, a freshman coming into this year, and Sam Hauser, a junior. And uh, again, going back to the glass, Theo John and Brandon Morrow, uh, two really good defensive bigs down low. Uh, John is a tremendous shot blocker, and Morrow and, and John combined to, to be a really good defensive rebounding uh, tandem. And then Sakar Annam as well. One of the more underrated players, not only on this team, but in the country, because of what he could do as a, uh, a shot maker from deep, as well as their best on-ball defender. And that's what I'm looking for coming, coming March. Can, do you have that lockdown guy that could shut down uh, the opponent's Marcus Howard, uh, a similar player to that? And Sakar Adam has that kind of potential uh, come March, a breakout candidate in that sense. And then you brought up Kansas State. And, and while... Uh, the other guys were on them. I'm not the biggest fan of the Wildcats. I know they went in to West Virginia. Dean Wade was a little banged up, and they won that game. And defensively, this is one of the top teams in college basketball. So from that perspective, you need defense to win the tournament. I, I get that. But they go on these stretches, uh, similar to a Texas Tech, even though the Red Raiders had picked it up. Houston can go on these stretches a little bit here and there, too. But they go on these scoring droughts where – you, you question, can, can they sustain their offense come March? So offensively, I am a little bit concerned. I know it's changed since Dean Wade came back from, from his injury, and, and we start to see Kansas State picking up offensively, especially from the perimeter. But offensively, I think that's what's going to hold this team back. I'm not the biggest fan of Kansas State come March. And then who are the, who are the other two teams brought up, Washington and who else? Washington and Houston. Washington and Houston, okay. And then Washington, I got at 201 value to begin the season. So I was a big fan of, of what Mike Hopkins, who's a former Syracuse assistant, uh, the 2-3 zone that he's brought uh, up, up west, uh, northwest to, to, to uh, UW. And, and the zone has played really well in Pac-12 play. And their adjusted defensive efficiency has spiked up too. This is the top adjusted uh, defensive efficiency in the Pac-12. I get people are going to say the Pac-12 is down this year, but it, that hasn't really been the case. Uh, again, you can't really just just say that and, and assume Washington is going to be done early in the tournament. This team has a ton of scoring options. Noah Dickinson is a really good download big for the Huskies, and Jalen Noel has, has ascended as well as a scorer in, in, uh, in Pac-12 play. A uh, really dynamic sophomore. He's come back, and he's been a big plus for them. David Crisp can stretch it from three. So Washington has a ton of offensive options all along with that zone that's flustered a ton of opponents. They got exposed against Arizona State a couple weeks back, and that was more of a letdown game because Washington had it lost in Pac-12 play, and Arizona State was coming off just a terrible loss to Washington State at home. So you're looking at a bounce-back performance. But as much as I like Washington, Chad, defensively that zone can get exposed. I was talking about Duke zone last year getting exposed and, and how, it, how it played well for them against Louisville uh, going back to last week. But uh, over the weekend, Washington State almost knocked off Washington. I know that's an in-state rivalry game, but they shot the lights out from three. So where do zones get exposed? It's from beyond the arc. And, and Washington State almost did that to Mike Hopkins' crew. So 
I'm not necessarily all the way in on Washington. I do like the value I got them at, and if you can get them at triple digits, it, it's really good value for a potential eight seed, a nine seed that can make a run in the big dance. But I'm not all over them. And then to the last team that you brought up in Houston, uh, man, do I love this team. And you go back to last season's tournament, it was similar to why I picked Tennessee as a, as a, as a future value going back to the preseason. Uh, Tennessee losing to Loyola Chicago on that rattling shot from Clayton Custer and Houston going down at the buzzer to Jordan Poole. So I know they lost Rob Gray going back to, to last season, but this team brought back a, a ton of its scores. Corey Davis and Armani Brooks can light it up from three, and Davis and Galen Robinson are, are tremendous ball-handling backcourt. So you're looking at elite guard play from that standpoint. They rebound the basketball. They're, they're top 50 in offensive and defensive rebounding rate in the country, and, and they're not the biggest team in the country, but, man, are they good at game rebounding, which is big come March. So from that perspective, and, and they turn you over their on-ball defense, their ball pressure limits, the, the opposition from getting into the paint. They have really good depth. Dejan Giroux and Nate Hinton coming off the bench. And going back to a game against Cincinnati at home, Cincinnati led by one with about six minutes left. And, and Nate Hinton, uh, Kelvin Sampson, who, who plugged Nate Hinton on Jaron Cumberland, who's one of the best scorers in the AAC. And he shut not only Cumberland down, but Houston didn't allow Cincinnati to score a single point over the last six minutes of that game. So this is a legitimate defensive team that's going to stop you uh, consistently, and that's what you need in March. Can a defense bring you back in a game when you're down by five to ten points? They not only did that against Cincinnati, but they did that against a red-hot LSU team going back to December when they were down double digits in the second half, and they came back and won that game by six and nearly covered uh, on the line I got a uh, day before that. So the, the, uh, the Cougars are legit under a Samson uh, that, that's won the tournament consistently going back to his days at Indiana and Oklahoma. All right, so basically what you're saying to me is I should uh, reevaluate all the futures bets I made because the one I didn't make after listening to you guys <laughs> was Houston. So I'm basically going to go back in right now and uh, double down on Houston. Eli Herskovich, Action Network college basketball writer. Thanks for everything you've been doing. It's great stuff. Obviously, uh, we'll be hearing more and more from you during the rest of the uh, season and into the tournament. Thanks, man. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Chad. All right. Eli Herskovich, college basketball expert for the Action Network. Thanks so much for joining us, buddy. This has been the Favorites Podcast from the Action Network. You can listen to us at Apple Podcasts at radio.com slash the Action Network or anywhere you get your podcast. We will be back on Thursday. Me and Blackjack Fletcher will have some special guests. Until then.